Well, for those of you who haven't been following along with us in the book of Job, just want to give you a little bit of a quick catch-up at where, we, where we're at. Many of you may have heard that Job was a man who suffered mightily through his life, but a lot of people don't know the, the whole story. Job was someone who was wise and righteous and someone who obviously had God's blessing on his life. He was extremely wealthy. He had a large and happy family. It seemed as if everything was going in the right direction for Job. He was renowned throughout the earth. Uh, He was someone who was a pillar of his community. If there was anyone who seemed to have it all together, it was Job. And so on one occasion, Satan showed up in God's presence, and actually on two occasions, showed up in God's presence, and God asked Satan about his opinion on Job. And Satan said, you know, if you take away this hedge of protection around him, he'll curse you to your face. Well, for those of us who have been following along in the story, you know that Job uh, lost his possessions, you know he lost his, his, his servants, you know he lost all of his children, and you know that his body was racked with all kinds of pain, and he suffered mightily. And at the end of all of that, Job never cursed God to his face. And so Satan had a another trick up his sleeve. He had friends that he sent to Job who were there to comfort and sympathize with him, but instead you'll see that they did things like we're going to read about today. Um, Bildad is a guy, just for a little bit of background, who's kind of developed a bad reputation among scholars. Francis Anderson calls him the traditionalist with the barbed tongue. And, um, and Derek Thomas says it more bluntly. He calls him the hatchet man. So we're going to see why he calls him that for a reason. Many of you know the story of Richard Vermbrand, And actually, this is something that my, my daughter reminded me of just uh, recently. But the story of Richard Vermbrand. Richard Vermbrand was a, was a Romanian pastor who lived, uh, who was a Lutheran pastor, lived through World War II, And after, as you know, after the war, the communists seized control of Romania. And one of the things that they did was they wanted to seize control of the church, control the message that was being spoken, shutter churches, etc. And that's because communists are materialists. They're anti-God in their doctrine. And so they wanted to shut him up. And so uh, essentially he was walking to church one morning. It was a Sunday morning. It was, uh, it was February 29th, 1948. And as he was on the way to church, it was a quiet morning. There weren't many people on the streets. Cars parked along the side of the road. Not many people out. And then all of a sudden uh, a truck pulled up. And some men got out of the truck and they grabbed Richard Vermbrand and they threw him into the back of the truck and they took off down the streets and he was peering out the windows, trying to figure out where he was, where they were taking him. And finally, uh, he noticed the gates of a prison uh, in Bucharest open. And as he went through the prison gates, he heard the prison gates close behind him, and he believed that that might be the last sound he ever would hear. Well, we know that when that happened to Richard Vermbrand, he was... He was scared to death. And the question that um, we have for us 
is, um, is what do we do? What, do? what do you do when you're scared to death? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you feel panicked or overtaken by fear? Maybe there's a situation that you're dealing with in your health and you're afraid of what lies ahead. Or maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe there's somebody who's out to get you at work. Or perhaps um, you're afraid of losing a relationship or you're afraid of choices that somebody that you love might make. What do you do when you're scared to death? This passage teaches us that only Christ has the power to deal with the deepest fears of our heart. Only Christ has the power to deal with the deepest fears of our heart. Now we're introduced again to Bildad, as I mentioned. He's a hatchet man. And um, Bildad believes truly that Job is a dead man walking. He's a dead man walking. Now, in our culture, uh, we love uh, roller coasters. How many of you are fans of roller coasters? Okay, how many of you hate roller coasters? Are willing to admit it? Okay, that's almost 50-50. I'm shocked. Uh, there are some who love, you know, suspense movies because, because of, you know, it's, it's a little scary at times. And, and probably the reason why uh, in our culture we, 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 we like roller coasters and we like suspense films is because it gives us a little bit of, well, it gives us a facade of fear in an environment that's really safe. But what do we do if we're really in a... Um, a scary situation, and particularly is one that you will see that, that Job is dealing with. If, if Bildad was a, was a Hollywood film director today, he would be directing horror flicks. When I was meditating on, on these verses this week, early in the week, I, I was literally sitting in my chair shaking as I imagine myself as Job, and I imagine hearing someone say these things that are about to be said to him. Listen to what Bildad says to him. He says about Job and his plight and his situation, Job has lost everything. Job thinks that he's under uh, 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 God's judgment for some reason, even though Job maintains his innocence. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, his three friends, they assume that Job is suffering the wrath of God for some secret sin that he has committed he, Job is can repeatedly ask them to point it out, but they can't, but they just assume that he's done something wrong. And so notice what Bildad says in verse 5, indeed, the light. Now remember, light is symbolic of life. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. Now he's speaking in the third person, but he's really talking about Job. He's saying, Job, your light, your life has been put out. And the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. Now, what is he, what is he doing? What is he showing us here? These, this word here for steps are shortened, this could be shuffling around, along. Now, imagine yourself. You've probably in a, been in a situation like this. You're in your house. It's at night. Maybe you're sitting in your living room, and then all of a sudden, the lights go out. Well, now you need to find a flashlight. But, but imagine it's one of those situations where you can't see your hand in front of your face. 
So you're in total pitch black darkness, and this is what he wants Job to realize. Job is in that situation. Job is in his tent. Uh, His lamp is put out. He is in absolute darkness. And so Job, he said, you were once like an athletic man who took long, confident strides, but now you're in the darkness, and now you shuffle along. You ever ever been in the darkness, and and and, and all of a sudden you normally walk like this and normal, and then all of a sudden when you're in the darkness, you kind of walk like this? And why do you do that? You don't want to whack your shin. You don't want to stub your toe. You don't want to maybe fall down the steps. And so you just kind of shuffle along until you can get some light to help you see your way. Well, Bildad is saying that Job is, is, is like a man like that. The lights have been turned out of his life and he is shuffling along. But it gets worse. It gets worse as he describes Job's plight. He describes for Job the most frightening future imaginable. Now, just as, as we read through these verses, and if you have your Bibles in front of you in 8 through 11, just look at how many times he uses words like, like net, mesh, trap, snare, rope. Think about how Job's heart was pounding as he heard his friends see these words to him. Verse 8, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase at his heels. Job, you have to remember, Job is in a position where he has absolutely lost everything. He is suffering unlike anyone else we could ever imagine. And what Bildad is saying to him is, Job, you haven't seen nothing yet. It's like you're in pitch black darkness. It's like you're walking along and you think that you're shuffling along in safety. But little do you know that under your feet is a net and there is a rope hidden and that rope is going to grab hold of you and it's going gonna, it's gonna to catch you in its trap. And then when he least expects it, he will face the worst terror of all. Look with me up here on the PowerPoint. He says in verse 12 and following of chapter 18, he says, his strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. So he's now weak. He's famished. He's stumbling along in the dark. It consumes the part of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. Then he goes on and he says in verse 14, he is torn from the tent. Now imagine this picture. You have this man walking in the darkness. The lights have gone out. He is making his way along. There are traps set for him. There is a rope for him. And then he, he is in the confines of, of a place that he feels comfortable. He is in his own tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. So now you imagine a man who is caught in a trap in this utter darkness and he is pulled out kicking and screaming and he is being brought to the king of terrors. As Dana said last week, with friends like this who needs enemies, right? Brought to the king of terrors, which is likely death. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. 
Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. There is judgment there. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about how Sodom and Gomorrah was was utterly, completely destroyed. He's saying, Job, that this is going to happen to you. You are going to get dragged kicking and screaming to the king of terrors. Uh, uh, The sulfur of judgment is going to fall upon you. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. And then he, now he goes for the jugular. You know Job lost all ten of his children. Then he says, his memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. What a picture that we get of Job in this story. And then we notice, and just as the end, he has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. Job is utterly and completely uh, under, as far as, as Bildad is concerned, under the wrath of God, so much so that he will be like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were completely destroyed by the Lord, and it will happen at the very moment that he least expects it. Job should be thanking the Lord that his problems aren't any worse than they are because one day, surely, they will be. He is going to be living a life of absolute, total fear and terror. Can you see why we say that this guy would have made a, a, a director of horror movies? This is, this, is, this is the situation that he said Job faces, and then he does so because in verse 21, he reminds Job that this is what happens to everyone who knows not God. He assumes that Job does not know the Lord. Well, Bildad now rests his case on that happy note. <laughs> Okay, now, what does Job do? So, as far as Bildad is concerned, he thinks that Job is a dead man walking. Bildad thinks that Job, uh, uh, Bildad thinks that Job is a dead man walking, but Job says, not so fast, not so fast. There is no question that Bildad's words stung Job deeply. He feels that his friends have done him wrong. All he, he desires is, is a, bit of, a bit of empathy. Reminds me of the story, uh, or, or, or he says this in, in chapter 19, um, verses 3 and 4, he says to his friends, these 10 times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? 10 is the number of completion. It's not literally saying it's happened 10 times. He's just saying, he's just saying over and over again, you have just, you've just constantly badgered me with this. These 10 times you've cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? Even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains on myself. What I'm looking for is is a friend. Job wants somebody who's going to come alongside him to empathize with him. That's what his friend should be doing, entering with him into his suffering rather than throwing stones at him. Remember hearing the story of of the empathy of um, the British statesman Cecil Rhodes. He was the owner of the De Beers uh, De Beers diamond mines at one time controlled 85% of the diamond trade in the world I've read. Today I think it's almost 30% of the diamond trade in the world is still controlled by De Beers. He lived from the, from the middle of the 1800s to about 1900. Most of his life he spent in Africa. This is a picture of him. Uh, he died at 48. I, I think he looked too old to be 48. I think if you're 48 you look a lot younger than that. But I'm just being self-serving <laughs> I think at that point. But anyway, that's, that's Cecil Rhodes. But there's a, Cecil Rhodes was somebody who loved to 
dressed to the hilt. And he thought people should always be appropriately dressed and he wore, wore fine clothes. And there's a story about a young man who was invited to a dinner party that Cecil Rhodes was throwing and uh, the, the young man was traveling there. He was going by train. He was wearing tattered clothing and he was hoping that he would have an opportunity to change into something better before he got to the particular event. And when he arrived, to his horror, all the other guests had arrived and they were wearing their finest clothes and he now felt ashamed and embarrassed about the way that he looked. So the story goes that Cecil Rhodes actually ended up showing up very late that night and unlike his normal character, he showed up wearing an old tattered blue suit. Later on, that young man reflected and found out that Cecil Rhodes actually had been at that dinner party earlier that night, found out about the young man's embarrassment, left, found an old suit, came back so that he would feel more comfortable. That, that's, the, that's the heart of somebody who, who's empathetic. Well, Job was looking for empathy. He was looking for somebody to enter into his suffering with him. But he didn't find it. He says about his relationship with the Lord, he said, I call for help, but there is, n- there is no justice. Now, I want to show you something. This is, this is the tension of triangle in the book. This is kind of what's going on in the book. Uh, we notice here that we have three, three sides of this triangle, of course, showing off my math skills again. Um, you have God's justice. You have the retribution principle. What's the retribution principle? This is that idea that what goes around comes around. Uh, if, you, if you live a righteous life, God will shower upon you good things. If you're disobedient, bad things will happen to you. That was a common idea that was accepted in the ancient world. Even some people accept it today. Even some Christians, unfortunately, accept that idea today, even though clearly you see the book of Job, you see the teaching of Jesus, that this is not a biblical principle. But anyways, you had God's justice. God is a just God. You have the retribution principle. You have Job's righteousness. Well, Job's friends believed that God was just. They believed in this retribution principle that what goes around comes around, and if Job is suffering this way, it must mean that he is a wicked man because God would not punish a righteous man the way that Job is suffering. Job, on the other hand, he maintains his righteousness. He believes that he is a righteous person. But, on the other hand, he he also embraces this retribution principle. And because he embraces the retribution principle, he is calling into question the justice of God. Now, all of us know that the, that the real answer to this, this dilemma is that the retribution principle is untrue. God is just. Job is righteous. Uh, we found that out early in the book. But none of the characters really understand, none of the people understand what's really going on. And so Job finds him in this place where now he's beginning to question the justice of God. He says in verse 7, I call for help, but there is no justice. And then he goes on and he lists 10 trials that he is suffering with. Let's take a look at these 10 things that he goes through and he lists. Number one, he says God has put his brothers far from him. Number two, he says he is estranged from those who knew him. Number three, he says his relatives failed him. He says his close friends have forgotten him. And we can't doubt that based on what we're reading. He says he's a foreigner in his own house. He says his servant even ignores him. 
and, and, and his body odor is so bad. Like if this wasn't, if the guy wasn't going through this kind of struggle, this would be kind of funny. But obviously it isn't because of what he's going through. His body odor offends his wife. His breath is so bad. Uh, his, his siblings, it even offends them. Even young children, he says, despise him and say bad things about him. His closest friends abhor him, and those he loved have turned their backs on him. And then to top it all off, his body has been completely destroyed. He says, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's where we get that saying, by the way, skin of, the, skin of your teeth. I remember in the first grade asking my first grade teacher, did I pass? Because there was a lot of doubt for me whether I passed for good reason, and she looked at me and with her North Carolina accent, and she said, by the skin of your teeth. And uh, that's how it went in second grade and third grade and fourth grade and eighth grade. <laughs> uh, so what, what is he saying? He's lost so, much, he's lost so much skin at this point that the only skin he's got left is that, that film that develops on his teeth. This is, the, this is the kind of picture that Job paints for us. He has... He has been led into absolute despair by his friends. And at this moment, he cries out in verse 23, and he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. It's important to remember, Job lived about, uh, who knows, between 4,000 and 3,000 B.C., and in those days, they would, kings would inscribe the laws of nations on rocks. Here's a picture. This is Hammurabi's law code. Many of you may remember this, seeing a picture of this when you took Western Civ as a kid. And uh, on Hammurabi's law code, uh, this was about 1700 to 1800 BC, uh, Hammurabi had the laws of the nation, Babylonian laws, a Sumerian uh, 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 civilization, they were, the, the laws of the nation were inscribed on a stone so that anyone could see all the laws of the country at one time. Could you imagine if all the laws of America could fit on a, on a big stone like that so we could read them? But uh, that, that's the way they did it. And Job is about this period of time. And so what you think is, is that he's got this kind of in mind that, that, that he would not be forgotten. Remember, he was told by Bildad that, that you would be forgotten, there would be, you would have no posterity, and, and your, your life would, would just be buried under the rubble of history, and, and every contribution that you would ever have made has been, has been forgotten. And then Job cries out, and he says, oh, that, my, that, that, that this would be written in a book. Oh, that, that, uh, that there would be a, a, there's some kind of lead pen to, to, to scribble it into, this, into a rock so that it would be remembered. Now, I think it's a beautiful thing, and we see, the, we see who's right and who's wrong here, right? Because Bildad made this prediction about Job's future. Job cried out to God that his story wouldn't be forgotten, and guess what? Here we still have it in the eternal word of God now. Job's prayer was answered. If you ever doubt, if you ever doubt prayer, or you even doubt that God can, can answer radical prayers, this is a radical prayer that he prayed in a situation, and here we are, 3,500 years later, and we're still talking about Job. His words have been preserved in something that is far greater and longer lasting than any piece of stone. It's inscribed in the word of God, and it's remembered forever, and God uses it to help his people. Well, it's important to remember that when we go through times of suffering, often God uses our suffering 
uh, to a greater extent than he does when we are at ease and in comfort. And so we notice that Job exclaims his heart. Now, in the, you have to remember what despair Job is in. And then all of a sudden, something changes in his heart, in his life, in his mind. He says in, verses, in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, meaning after I die... Yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is resurrection hope. After he dies, he has resurrection hope. Here it is in the Old Testament. We see it now pointing to his Redeemer, who he says is alive. And he says, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. I mean, that, that expression, my heart faints within me, I mean, that was a, the, there's just no adequate way to, to translate that into English. Um, Francis Anderson has translated it this way, my kidneys have ended in my chest. I mean, he is so excited. He's so thrilled. He's in this rapturous joy. Here he is in the depths. He's terrified. He's scared to death. And then all of a sudden, he lifts his mind to the the fact that his Redeemer is alive, and he feels as if his kidneys are now moving into his chest. He's so excited. that's That's an amazing thing. Well, why is it that this thought of a Redeemer is so significant? Well, the, the, the word for Redeemer is the word goel in Hebrew. Uh, we read about a, uh, this, is, this is a kinsman redeemer. And if you want to read a story about a kinsman redeemer, that's a beautiful story. It's the story of Ruth. But a kinsman redeemer had four basic functions. Number one, uh, to buy back property in order to keep property in the family. We see that in Leviticus 25. It was to pay a price to save a kinsman from slavery. We also see that in Leviticus 25. It was to marry a widow and provide her dead husband with an heir. We see that in the book of Ruth. And it was to avenge the death of a murdered relative. So Job realizes that he doesn't have any kinsman redeemers on earth, but he believes that he has a kinsman redeemer in heaven, and he believes that one day he will see him in his flesh after he dies. This is what Derek Thomas says about the Goel or the kinsman redeemer. What this illustrates was that somebody had to pay a price to set free property from a mortgage, animals from slaughter, persons from slavery or death, or the deceased from dishonor in order to keep them for their memory or name. In the family, Job is confident that such a redeemer exists who will defend his own cause and act as a family member indebted to maintain his honor and integrity. Job's life is forfeit. God seems already to have pursued him close to death. Should he die as he expects to, it was the function of the Redeemer to avenge the shedding of innocent blood. Even if everyone else disowns him, his friends most certainly had, Job is sure that his divine kinsman will speak a word in his favor and thereby present a legal case that will gain God's hearing. 
And in this now, we are reminded that we have a kinsman redeemer. Job didn't know his name yet. Jesus had not come along, but he trusted that God had made a way of salvation for him. God had made a way for his debt to be paid for, to be taken care of. And so in this, we see this beautiful picture of redemption, this redemption that Job placed his hope in during this time in his life. And the beautiful thing about us as Christians is that we we have a Goel, we have a Redeemer, we have a kinsman Redeemer who paid the debt that we owe, the debt of sin that we owe, and his name is Jesus. And eternal life is found in Jesus. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what, what, what fears haunt us about our past. We can go to that, to that kinsman Redeemer and trust him as our Savior. And when we trust him as our Savior, he is the one who provides the legal defense for us. He is the one who bore the, the right punishment for our sin so that through him we might have life. It's a beautiful picture. It's amazing in the midst of all of this, Job sets his mind on the Lord and it changes everything. Just want to make three applications from this, this text as we are meditating on it together. Number one, Jesus is the only cure for our deepest fears and despair. Jesus is the only cure for our deepest fears and despair. Um, Maybe, maybe you've awakened in the middle of the night and you have found yourself in despair. Or maybe it was during the course of the day and something happened and, and immediately you found yourself in, in a terrible place, in a dark place. And one of the ways that we, we try to, to cope with this is through fantasy. We, we imagine ourselves living a different life. Maybe we imagine ourselves working in a different job. Maybe we, uh, we just, uh, some people turn to, to uh, illegal substances. Some people uh, uh, turn to, um, to television and we watch television all day long. Some people uh, spend all of the time, all of their time on the internet just, just, just looking at things to take our minds off of our issues in the moment. Well, next time you find yourself maybe in the middle of the night and you wake up and some fear overtakes you, maybe you have a panic attack. Maybe it's not a panic attack, but you feel fearful. It's palpable and you don't know what to do with it. One of the greatest things you can do is get up from wherever you are and go find a place, get your Bible and open up the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was written by people who are going through the same kinds of things and you will discover that when you, when you begin reading some of the psalms, you'll see that the psalms begin with, with uh, the psalmist who's in despair, the psalmist is suffering, the psalmist is afraid, the psalmist is on the run. And then by the end of the psalm, the psalmist's heart is lifted up to God. That's exactly what happened to Job. God intervened in, in his life and in his situation and in his despair. And he turned his mind to the Lord. And in the midst of all of that, in the bleak present that he was living, in the bleak future that his friend provided for him, he lifted up his mind to his Redeemer and he understood that there was hope, so much hope that in the midst of this, his kidneys leapt up into his chest. Second thing to remember, second lesson we can learn from this. When we interact with others, consider it a divine appointment to build them up in Christ. When we interact with others, consider it a divine appointment to build others up in Christ. One of the things that we see about Job's friends is they were, they were more interested in straightening them out than building them up, weren't they? They didn't really know what his problem was. That was the big problem. 
But they were more interested in straightening them out. They're trying to scare them straight. Remember when, when uh, in the 80s, well, for those of you who are old enough to remember the 80s, um, they used to have these commercials, and it was for teenagers, and it was like, it was like, this is your brain. And it would have like an egg. Remember that? And then it was like, this is your brain on drugs. And then uh, they, they cracked the egg, and then they poured out on a frying pan. That, that, those commercials were designed to scare everybody straight, right? That's what, his, that's what Job's friends were trying to do. They were trying to scare him straight rather than trying to enter into his pain with him. And, and I believe that people around us are starving for people to take a spiritual interest in us and one another. I know I bring him up a lot, but, but the supreme example that I know of is Pastor Ken. Pastor Ken, many of you know Pastor Ken Nanfelt. He's here somewhere. And, uh, yep, there he is in the back. Pastor Ken, he's a master at this. You watch him in every interaction with every person. It doesn't matter whether you go out to lunch with him. It doesn't matter if you're at church. It doesn't matter where, if you're somewhere else. Pastor Ken always looks for an opportunity every time he comes into contact with people to encourage them, to build them up in Christ. Could you imagine how different things would be if we looked at every interaction with every other person this way? An opportunity to point them to Jesus if they don't know Jesus, an opportunity to build them up in Christ if they do know Jesus. It would radically transform everything if we loved each other in this way. And then the third third thing that we notice is this. When we're overwhelmed by the world... Remember that you have a Redeemer who paid your debt. Remember that you have a Redeemer who paid your debt. Well, like Job, Richard Vermbrand, when he was sent to prison, and he went to prison for many years, he, he turned his heart to the Lord. He looked upward to the Lord. And um, apparently... And it must be in the Romanian Bible because it doesn't work out this way in the English Bible. I I looked it up. But he believed that that the the statement, do not fear, is is said 366 times in Scripture. And uh, remember, it was on February 29th, 1948, when he was abducted. And uh, he believed that God gave that statement, do not fear, for every day of the year, including leap year. And he was in encouraged by that. And it was said of Richard Vermbrand that he never allowed fear into his jail cell. He lifted up his mind to the Lord. You have a redeemer. You have somebody who came to rescue you. His name is Jesus. It's to give you life. Sometimes we struggle with fears. They can be overwhelming. But remember that you have a God in heaven who is sovereign over everything that we encounter, everything that we go through. Nothing escapes his gaze. He loses sight of nothing, and he cares for his people. There's nothing like being in a relationship with Jesus. And maybe, there's, maybe there are people here who have never experienced that life-transforming power that's found in him. He's the redeemer of his people. He's the kinsman redeemer of his people. He died to pay the price that we could not pay so that we might live. And so the question is, is whether or not you know Jesus. This is the beginning of life in him. This is the beginning of hope in a dark world. 
And no matter what people like Bildad said, no matter how many times he said, Job, your light has been put out and you're on, you're, you're, you're on your way to being dragged to the king of terrors, Job, when he turned his mind to heaven, he knew none of that was true. He knew he had a friend in heaven who would rescue from him from death, who would usher him into heaven with himself forever, and one he would live with forever. And the question is, is whether or not you know him, whether you've experienced this, this transforming power, whether you know this in your deepest darkness, whether you've ever experienced a friend like him who can go into those places of the soul that no human voice can travel. Do you know him? There's no better, no more wonderful, no more joyful relationship in all the world than the one that God has established for us through Jesus Christ. And we receive it through faith in him, through faith in him. Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.